these words. Our sermon text today is from 2 Peter. Uh, 2 Peter is a small letter toward the end of the New Testament, and we don't often turn to it, either in our readings or especially in our preaching. But it's a wonderful little book, and it has many texts that deserve to be preached. Uh, this one is Peter's recollection of the event that Wes just read about, the uh, transfiguration. So let's be standing as we hear this, the Word of God, as given to us by his faithful servant Peter. First, uh, Second Peter, Second Peter, chapter one, verse sixteen and following. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received honor and glory from God the Father. When the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. May God bless the reading of his word. Of Jesus is a very important story in the Bible. We know that because all three of the synoptic writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell the story. And then here at the end of the New Testament, we have Peter reflecting back on that experience that he had as well. It's a wonderful story and one that really invites us to practice an ancient form of spiritual discipline that you may not know the name of, but you know how to do it. It's Lectio Divina which is a divine reading. And what Lectio Divina includes, among other things, is a visualization of the passage. And so as we think about the story, we don't just read the words, we make a movie of it in our minds. We, we see this story. We look around at the story. We enter into it and actually experience it. So we want to work our way back through this story and as we do this, I invite you to make your own movie. You be the director, and you decide what things look like, and you decide where you're standing and how you're looking at it, and see what this story then perhaps might say to you. story begins with Jesus calling three of his closest friends, Peter, James, and John, over to him, and he points up and he says, see that mountain? Let's go climb it. Now, which mountain it is, is disputed. There's about three possibilities. It's not identified in Scripture as to which one it was. But any of the three that it could be, we're talking about a mountain here. We're not talking about just a little hill. They didn't go climb one of the twin buttes. You know, they, they were going up a snow-capped mountain. And that's part of what we need to have in mind as we play this story yet in our mind, because they, they were doing mountain climbing. I love to climb mountains, don't you? I got one no, a loud no last service, <laughs> but I think most of us who are still able, 
really enjoy going up a mountain. But climbing a mountain is not easy, especially a large mountain like this. And even if there's a trail that makes its way up the mountain, uh, you know that it takes a lot of physical exertion to get up. But, but that's just part of it. That's just wonderful. Especially like to climb mountain with a group of friends. Uh, you just laugh and talk and you stop and you look and say, look over there and look at that. And wow, isn't that great? So here go these four guys and they're working their way up this steep mountain. And I don't know how long it took them to climb it, but it looked, probably took at least several hours which meant that they probably along the way had a rest break here and there, had a water break. Maybe they even had brought some lunch and spread it out and sat around and visited and looked up at the peak and looked where they had come from and talked about how beautiful everything is. Well, finally they get to the top of the mountain and Jesus says, let's pray. Don't you love to pray on a mountaintop? Those of you who have climbed tall mountains, I see Sid shaking his head. I know he's climbed a lot of mountains in Colorado. It's just a wonderful place to pray. Because oftentimes the sky is so blue. And it's just like God is right there with you. And then you look out over the valleys below and just the gorgeous scenery that you can see. And you think, wow, God made all of this. And so the four of them began to pray. And I know that Peter and James and John were having a special experience right there, but all of a sudden they realized something really different is happening here. Now, in my movie, I'm praying with them and I've got my eyes closed. And even with your eyes closed, though, you can tell if suddenly there's a bright light somewhere. And as they're praying along, and all of a sudden they sense that there is a light. And they open their eyes and they look. And as Matthew says, the face of Jesus had begun shining as bright as the sun. And his clothes were suddenly a bright white. He says, whiter than any white on this earth. And as Matthew says, what we were seeing was Jesus transfigured. Now, transfigured is a strange word. It's a word that really, I think, do we ever use that word except for this story? Um, Perhaps in some applications, but it's not a word we commonly throw into a conversation. Transfigured. We can tell what it means, trans, and the figure or the form of Jesus was changing. Right before the apostles' very eyes, he was changing. Now, I really like the Greek word for this, and I don't know why we didn't just bring the Greek word into the English like we did with baptism. Baptism is a Greek word. We just brought it into the English language. I don't know why we didn't bring the Greek word here because the word is metamorphos. Jesus was was going through a metamorphos. Now, that is a word we do use. Where do we use that word commonly? Butterflies, right? That's what I think of when I think of metamorphosis with the little caterpillar, you know, and the sort of an icky little caterpillar, and all of a sudden it makes a cocoon and then it comes out and it's a beautiful butterfly. It changed forms. Perhaps if some of our young folks were writing this text down today, they would say Jesus morphed. 
because he did change from one form to another. And what is happening here? Well, he's not changing who he is. He is still Jesus, but he is reverting to the form in which he had been for eternity. Jesus, who had been with God, who had been in the form of God, before he veiled that glory in flesh and came to live among us upon earth as a human being. That glory that was Jesus, who is Jesus, suddenly began to shine through this mortal body that he had taken upon himself. And Peter and James and John got to see that. They got to see his glory and to see him as he really is. Now, not only that, if that's not enough, as they were looking at him, and no doubt I would be looking at him like this, you know, trying to see. It'd be like looking at the sun, you know. You can just take brief glimpses. Suddenly they realized that he's not alone. There's two other guys standing there with him. And not just any two guys. One of them is Moses, and one is Elijah. I don't know how they knew it was Moses and Elijah. They don't tell us that. But somehow they knew that's who these are. Maybe it was through the conversation they were having. Maybe Jesus said, hi, Moses. Hi, Elijah. Or they could have been wearing the little, hello, my name is. <laughs> I don't know. But they knew this is Moses and Elijah here. Now, that is big stuff. Because Moses was the greatest lawgiver God ever gave. You know, through Moses, God gave the law to tell the people of Israel what to be and what to do. It's through Moses that the people of Israel had become the covenant people of God. There was no greater person in Scripture and in the history of the Jewish people than Moses. And Elijah. Elijah was the greatest prophet. Whenever they, they, they used the word Elijah or the name Elijah, they could refer to all the prophets as those of Elijah. Elijah was the great one. And so they're standing there and they're looking at Jesus and all of a sudden they realize he's talking to Moses. He's talking to Elijah. What do you say then? Well, probably the best thing to say at that time is nothing. <laughs> right? You know, if you're in that kind of glory and going through that kind of experience, probably better just to keep your mouth closed. What is the old saying that's attributed to Abraham Lincoln? Better to keep your mouth closed and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Well, one of them has to say something, and guess who it is? Peter. Peter tends to open his mouth at times when it would have been best probably to keep it closed. But Peter has to say something. He says, Lord, he said, it is just so good to be here. <laughs> It is kind of funny, isn't it? <laughs> what do you say? But then he goes on to say, why don't you let us build three dwellings or tabernacles or temples or whatever you want to call them, three shrines to honor you guys for this moment. We could build one for you. We could build one for Moses. We could build one for Eli. And before he could even finish, they were completely enveloped in a bright, white cloud 
so thick they couldn't even see their hands in front of their face. And as they stood there totally blinded, a voice speaks out of the cloud and says, This is my son whom I love, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Well, that was too much. All three of them collapsed on the ground, shaking in fear. And the next thing that they experienced was a gentle hand of Jesus on their shoulder saying, come on, guys, let's go. And they get up, and all the glory is gone. And once again, all they see is this man, a man that they love, a man that they've walked with, a man that they've talked with, a man that they've eaten with. But things would never be the same for them because not only had they experienced him as a man, they had now seen his glory. Now, that's a powerful story. And I don't know what you take away from that story, what you learn when you play that story out in your mind. And what you would think about Jesus from that point on if you had been Peter or James or John. Let me share a couple of thoughts that I have that I take away from the story. One is rather obvious. Jesus really is the Son of God. He wasn't just a man that lived on this earth. Although he looked like so many other people, and as the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53 says, he wasn't particularly good-looking. It wasn't something about his appearance that people held him up and said just were drawn to him. He was just a common, everyday person. Yet he was also the Son of God. That the glory of God walked this earth in the appearance and in the form of a human being. But let us not ever have as a picture of Jesus only as a man. That whenever we hear the name of Jesus, we also think of his glory. Now, I know the Apostle John, who was one of the ones up there on the mountain with them, I know that he felt this way because later on he wrote the story of Jesus. And even though he didn't include this story in his account, because after all, they already had Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and he tends to tell us stories that no one else tells us, listen to the way he begins his gospel. And you tell me if this event that he went through on that mountain didn't change his life. As he began to tell the story, he said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Skipping down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. And finally, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, 
But it is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart. He showed God to us. Now, that's written by a man who was on the Mount of Transfiguration. And from that time on, when he thought of Jesus, he didn't just remember his physical features. He didn't just remember the times that they sat around the campfire and talked. He knew he was the Son of God in power and in glory. Another thing we learn from this isn't a lesson that's that important to us because it's one we kind of assume, but it was really important to Peter and James and John, is the superiority of Jesus over every other human being who ever lived. Even Moses and Elijah. Here are these two great giants of God's servants. And when Peter and James and John saw Moses and Elijah, they thought, wow. And probably at the beginning they thought, and Jesus fits in with Moses and Elijah. He's right up there with them. And that was the purpose of the whole cloud and the voice. It says, no. He is my son. You listen to him. That he is exalted above all. He is the Lord of all. Even the Lord of Moses and Elijah. And one more thing I want to share with you before we look at what Peter says about it. This story means so much to me because it tells me that even though Moses and Elijah had lived hundreds, thousand years ago, they lived on. One thing I do a lot is talk to people who have just lost a loved one. And I can't tell you how many times I've had the question asked in one form or another, where is he now? Or where is she now? And I can't really answer that specifically. We can look at lots of different verses and get some ideas. And this is one of those passages that at least tells us. We may not know exactly where and what but we know they are. I've said goodbye to a lot of good friends. And I've said goodbye to my mom and my dad. And this passage gives me hope. It gives me encouragement. Because just like Moses was there and Elijah was there, and he was still Moses and he was still Elijah, that the others in our lives who walked in faith are still there too. And just like there's still Moses and there's still Elijah, she's still mom and he's still dad. I'm so thankful for this passage. Well, what did Peter take away from it? Well, probably if you'd walked up to Peter and say, remember that day on the mountain, the transfiguration Tell me what you learned. Tell me what you experienced. He might have a whole list of things. But when he was writing this letter that we call 2 Peter to some friends, he brought up his recollection of this for a couple of reasons. And probably the reasons that he chose to talk about were because of what some of the problems were his friends were having. So he brought this story to bear on some questions and struggles that they were having. 
One thing that his friends were talking about is, you know, it's been a long time since Jesus said he was coming back. I don't know if he is or not. And others were saying, it's been so long, it's just hard to really keep that as a part of our thinking, you know? It's just kind of easy to file that away. Oh, yeah, and someday Jesus is coming back. <laughs> and go on with our lives and live life as if this is all there is. But one thing that this story taught Peter was not only the power and the glory of Jesus, but he knew for a fact that that man was coming back. That in his power and in his glory, he was coming to redeem, he was coming to bring to him those who had lived before he was coming to be the judge of all the earth. It's interesting that, uh, I don't want to get too much in it, but it's interesting if you go back to the Matthew account that Wes read a moment ago, if you go back to it, right before the story of the, of the transfiguration, you know what Jesus is talking to the people about? One day you will see me coming in the clouds with power and glory to judge the earth. And then he says, come on, guys, let's go up that mountain. And as Peter is reflecting on these people that have let go of the power of the coming of Jesus and how that shapes our lives and how it can keep us going and how it gives us a destination, how it gives us a purpose in life, he brings this story up. Paul in 1 Thessalonians wrote an account that I think is appropriate at this point. I normally only read this in memorial services, but I think it's fitting today. We believe Jesus died. We believe he rose again. Therefore, we believe he's coming back. For the Lord himself, with the cry of command, with the archangel's call and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven. The dead in Christ will rise. Those who are still alive will be caught up in the clouds together with him. And we will all meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever together. And then he says, therefore, encourage each other with these words. Those words bring comfort, but they also bring direction to our lives. And then the last thing that Peter does, in Second Peter at least, with this story is rather interesting. He starts talking about Scripture. Isn't that funny? I mean, I don't know that I would have gone that direction. But as he's talking about the transfiguration, he starts talking about Scripture. And this is the point he's making. That through prophecy that has been written down for us in Scripture, we have the vital information we need to make it through this life. Just like this transfiguration experience gave him the will to go on and the information he needed to set a direction for his life, we, through Scripture, get that through the prophecies that God has given to us. We have enough information to know what to do, who we should be, what should we should be, and where we should go. It's interesting the little figure he uses here. He talks about being in darkness. Now, for Peter, 
Darkness was probably a much more of a common experience than it is for us. We don't spend much of our lives living in physical darkness because we tend to just go flip the light on, don't we? It may be dark when we get up, but then we just flip the light on and we can see all that we want. In Peter's day, it wasn't quite that easy. It was hard to bring light into darkness. About all they had was little bitty oil lamps. And these, most of these lamps are about that big. And you'd put one in your hand and you'd have a little flame here. And as you tried to make your way through darkness, really all you could see was enough light to make one more step safely. And then you look and say, well, I can go here. And then I can go here. He compares Scripture as that kind of influence and power in our lives. Scripture does not answer every one of our questions. I've heard it said that all answers we need are there. I mean, all answers are there. I don't believe all answers we need are there. But I have a lot of questions I cannot find answers to anywhere in this Bible. Anyone else have that problem? Yeah. Maybe I'm just asking the wrong questions. <laughs> There's questions I don't have. But you know what this book does? What the prophecy of Scripture? It gives us enough light to take the next step. And I may say, well, what's way over there? I don't know. But I can see what's right there, and that's where I need to go. And then I need to go here, and I need to go there. And Peter says, keep walking that way, one step at a time, with this light of the prophecy of God, what God has told us about who he is and what he is and what we are to be and who we are to be. You keep walking until, and it's a beautiful passage, he says, until the light of day dawns and the morning star rises in your life. Until the light of day dawns, the sun comes up, and one day it will, and the morning star will rise in our lives, and then we will see, because the light of our life will be the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's Peter's invitation to us today, to live with the knowledge that our Lord is coming back for us, to make it through the darkness of our lives, one step at a time, as God, through his grace and his mercy, leads us and guides us through his word. Let's be standing and sing together.